This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And I wish I could start out today by saying confidently that it's an installment of True Crime TV Club or an installment of What Science. It seems like it's a mishmash of both of our regular segments. We're going to be talking about a documentary called My Amityville Horror. And I'm not sure how to describe what it is like <laughs> we don't usually start this way usually we take you blow by blow through the story that we're just discussing but this is a strange movie this is a, I, i'm what did you what do you think we just watched um therapy session outtakes yeah that's really what it was like did you see that last effort to make a movie of uh, the Haunting, actually it was a series, I think, The Haunting of Hill House. No, no, I didn't. That was the Netflix show? Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was like they, they needed more haunting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was a series. It was like The Haunting had all happened before the show started. Mm-hmm. So you just had people whinging about their experience with The Haunting and the way it had mm-hmm. affected their lives. and right. So it was a colossal bore. Yeah. It was a complete waste of my time. It was like, yeah. this isn't the haunting of Hill House. This is the, and this was not the Amityville horror. This was 
my reaction to, you know what it reminded me of was what if you could actually do an interview with Charlie from mm. your books? Mm. From uh, the, the Burning Girl the Burning books. Girl oh, books. I love that you brought it around to my books. Right? Because it makes it about you. I yeah. made it about Christopher this yeah, time. Yeah, right. But Everybody. Actually, I made it about Charlie, but just the same. It, she is a character. I invented you Charlie. Yes, so, absolutely. Charlie um, Rowe. That. The, the experience that she had of being, her experience was real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a big believer in the supernatural, so I'm not dismissing the possibility of supernatural events and forces, even in the case of the Amityville Horror, although that one seems to have me, seems to me to have been more or less called out over the years as being well let's and let's talk about truthful because the charlotte Rowe thing from burning girl right is this she's a character who when she's about six years old the swat team storms the farm where she lives with her parents and she realizes that the people she thought were her parents are serial killers who murdered her mother and abducted her from the car when she was a baby Right. right and so the subject of this documentary is daniel lutz and daniel lutz is one of the children of george and kathy lutz and those names are familiar to people because they claimed that in 1975 i think it was 1975 okay. they bought a house in amityville long island that was haunted this story was they bought a house where a series of really terrible murders had happened yes at a discounted price because it was a house where a series of really terrible guy killed his whole family ronald defeo uh, shotgunned his entire family while they were sleeping and in bed and so they got the house for eighty thousand dollars an unthinkable price even in this day and age but then it was a discount it was a spe- and it's a spectacular house yeah had a boat dock um it was on meaning it was on the water and it was, was this rubber. big sort of shingled hampton-y looking mansion yeah. thing it was it was a pretty spectacular house so the family claimed that these paranormal events happened. The story breaks in New York Newsday. There's a media frenzy. The extent to which they cultivated the media frenzy is not exactly clear. They're very been, blurry. And the, this documentary is also not clear, they say. Super blurry. In fact, one of the people who helped create the event, the media event around this, is one of the principal players in this particular film. Right. So Daniel Lutz was the oldest son of George and Kathy Lutz. I can't remember where he has yes. two younger siblings. Okay, so. so he was 10 or 11 when all of this is alleged to have happened at the house in Amityville. Um, the backdrop is that George Lutz was his stepfather. He was very controlling. They had a really bad relationship, a relationship that makes Daniel get red-faced and angry and profanity-laced, even when he's interviewed about it in this documentary. So... The documentary doesn't bend over backwards to hide the fact that these two men really didn't like each other and went at each other and that their animosity for each other seems to lie all through this story. But the thing that Daniel has in common with Charlie, the thing that I find interesting about Charlie, most interesting about Charlie, and if I'm going to be interested in this guy, and I'm not very, Mm -hmm. but if I'm going to be interested in the thing that's interesting to me about this guy um, is... The question of whether or not, in Charlie's case, the reason that she's fucked up is because she was raised by serial killers or because 
her actual father exploited her and her family life yes. as a promotional tool to raise money and funds to support that's them right. in the style yeah. to which she'd become accustomed. And I think that's the same question here. Yeah. I don't think they only lived in the house. They lived in the house like less than a month, 28, 28 days. days. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think that's enough. Like apparently it was if everything they say is true and I don't honestly believe it is, but if everything they say is true about what happened, it was terrible, but it was 28 days worth and they left and it didn't follow them. So, and they've not been able, no, there has been no recreation of the events in any subsequent occupancy of the house. It's been lived in ever since by other people and nobody has reported anything that they Not a single paranormal thing. But if in fact it all happened, I think the thing that really screwed this man up and this man is really screwed up. Yeah. This is one of the most screwed up young men I've ever seen is the fame that his father brought into his life through the dishonesty of this particular scam that he was running as a way of raising money for his family. Like he enlisted the kid in the dishonesty. And as a result, the kid's contact with reality faltered Mm -hmm. and it's collapsed. And I think that is ultimately the position that this documentary takes. I think so. In a in a pretty subtle, maybe wants to have it both ways. But I, you know, and I don't want to fast forward right to the end. But the final moment I thought was pretty. The first time I thought the filmmakers showed what their intentions were that they were not actually out to convince you that the Amityville horror had really happened. They almost is, that's almost the Amityville horror is almost irrelevant to this. Yeah. film I thought yeah well it takes a while for it to be you're talking to Daniel Lutz you're seeing him go in and talk to a psychologist he's talking about all this terrible trauma he's very superior and grandiose with the psychologist that really you could ridiculous. never understand so ridiculous you know it's very and it's it's not you know like I don't, you know you don't need to make the guy likable but I don't see the guy as actively involved in any kind of healing or recovery from this. No, he's I think making, he's probably involved in yeah. substance abuse and yeah. any number of other things. His behavior was beyond irrational. Uh, he was born in 1965 in West Babylon, Long Island. Uh, his father and mother were high school sweethearts. That's Kathy Lutz married her high school sweetheart young. They got divorced when Danny was seven. He becomes very close with his mother. And then George Lutz, who we mentioned earlier, enters the picture this is like become a classic stepfather story. Like ex-Marine, had a gun carry permit, uh, really tough, a disciplinarian, allegedly made them call him Sir and Mr. Lutz and all that sort of stuff. A lot of which is coming from Danny and not backed up by there other- is, By anybody, yeah. even his brother and sister would not participate in this particular um, endeavor. Um Allegedly, again, actually, I think some other people verify this, but George would not marry Kathy unless he could legally adopt her kids. Even the, the ones he that did not, legally adopt yeah. her kids. I don't know yeah. if that's true, but sure. And I just what that said to me was like whatever the birth father situation was, he was really out of the picture. If he's no going to let you in this either adopt the kids, he's he's out. He's he's not making a fight. Uh, and then, as you mentioned earlier. One of the reporters who was on the story at the time in the 70s is really central to this documentary. She's almost like Danny's handler. She's she is the interviewing him. She's with him to go see other people. She's also going off to talk to other people about him and about the Amityville story. Um, her name is Laura Didio. She was an investigative reporter. And she was uh, working with Channel 5 News at the time, which I guess was local to the Long Island area where Amityville is. Um and she 
uh, met with George Lutz after this Newsday story broke. We don't really know who or how the Newsday story broke. I'm sure that knowledge is out there in the Amityville lore, but it's not really presented clearly in this documentary. And by Laura's account, George trusted her and opened up his house and the entire family to her. And I guess she was the one who assembled this group of reporters and psychic investigators. That part was tough for me when we got to that. um, Who spent the night in the house, right? I will say this. Yes. That photograph was the scariest thing in this whole show. Okay. And let's talk about what that photograph was. Okay. So they... Assembled all of these people. They're her fellow new on-air newscasters. Mm-hmm. These um, authorities in the field of paranormal investigation, right? Um, at the time or whatever, and they did not experience anything particularly in the house. There's the paranormal investigators uh, uh, alluded to feelings and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, which I'm not dismissing. They may have actually felt, but there was nothing, there was no real manifestation and they just sort of tossed it off. It was like, yeah, no, I didn't see any evidence. There was anything. And then they said, except for that one photograph. And it was the photograph that they took at the top of the stairs. And in it was this demon child with glowing eyes eyes. and they said and you know there were no children anywhere in the house so there was no no way that this child this was a picture of any child and i was like i'm sorry (laughs) yeah was this not the evidence you were looking for they showed the photograph and i i mean it literally knocked me back i was like that's actually really terrifying yeah because the danny's claim was that he throughout the show was that he was possessed by mm-hmm. another spirit. And if that's the spirit he was possessed by that we were being presented with, it, it's a picture of a child who with glowing red eyes, like and that was taken by this news organization. I, I just, oh, okay. I, that a, was a, really... a couple things, a couple things. If I remember correctly, the photograph was not taken by the news organization. The photograph was taken by the Warrens, right? Wasn't that it? Ed and Lorraine Warren? Don't know. Okay. I think the documentary was very sly because they get all the Channel 5 people who spent the night in the house together today around a roundtable. Yeah. And the and the editor of the story says, we went over every frame of our footage, everything we took, yeah. and we saw no evidence. Right. And then I think later in the documentary, Ed and Lorraine Warren, would, oh, but we have this photo that we took that night. They said it in the context of interviewing those people around that table. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. I am absolutely certain because that's why it struck me. If... If they had shown it with the, Ed and Lorraine Warren, Warren yeah. I would have dismissed it out of hand. Yeah. That woman really needs uh, serious help. Okay, we're going to get to her. Let's let's hold it because I have a lot to say about her. But okay, so but the the accusation of possession that it, that Danny's parents made was that the possession in Danny continued long after they left the house. So if that if that child is still in the house that night. That child is in the house after Danny's left the yeah. house. I don't know what people believe the laws they of possession to be. They never went back to, to that house, ever. Yeah. Now, they left their clothes on the floor, their food in the refrigerator. They walked out the door after 28 days and never, ever went back, let the house be repossessed by the bank. They literally went to San Diego to get as far away went from to the other side of the as country. they possibly could. But again, in one of those contradictions, we hear them say the Lutz never wanted publicity. And then we have Danny say later that after they moved to San Diego, they went on a paid publicity tour around Absolutely. the country. They were on the Dick Cabot, not, not Dick Cabot. Um, Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin show. We see the clip of that. 
and their excuse or their explanation when they're on the Merv Griffin show is that because the story was broken without our knowledge or before we could, without our involvement, certain distortions were told from the beginning and we want to correct the record, you know. But the story includes a room with hordes of flies in it that, that could not be killed, that, that Danny went in um, and, by his own account, killed a bunch of the flies with a newspaper and the flies' dead bodies disappeared and the newspaper disappeared. Danny claims to have been thrown up the staircase and slammed into a wall. He claims that a window came crashing down on his hands. And crushed his hands flat. Crushed his hands flat. And that by the time his mother rushed him downstairs, not to the hospital, mind you, but downstairs, given the Never injury. Never went to the hospital. By the time they make it to the kitchen, his hands have healed. And he shows his hands. There's no evidence of the type Except of- Except for his little finger is crooked. His little finger is crooked. Um, Which could have been broken at any time. So there are the stories that the family tells, and then there are the versions of it in the movie, which are elaborately overdone. Like in the movie, Rod Steiger, I think, plays a priest who goes into the room with the flies, and he's covered with the flies and collapses, and that that never happened. The story that they tell is that a priest came to bless the house in the beginning and basically said, I'm out of here. <laughs> which doesn't, to me, sound like how a priest does a blessing, but he did like maybe two rooms, sent something really bad, like and left. So, okay, so that's all... Those stories kick around for like the entire length of the documentary. And as they come back to them, they get embellished and they get changed and they get whatever. And it's so, did you believe any of those stories? I believed that Danny believed those stories were why he was famous. And I mm -hmm. believe that Danny believed he was famous. He never was, mm -hmm. but he believed he was. He's like one of those people from The Bachelor mm -hmm. who thinks that because they were on The Bachelor, Everyone in the world knows who they are. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> There's a sequence right um, in the. I, it's. I'm going to say it's, it's about halfway through, maybe a quarter from the end of, of the film, where he's talking. Danny is talking about people either call me this name or that name or that name because apparently his character was called different names yeah. depending on different versions of the movie. Like mm -hmm. that is literally the first time I've ever heard that, and I've been alive during the entire time that this whole thing unfolded, yeah. and he believes that everybody knows all of those things about him because as a child he believed he was famous because he was a part of this tissue of whatever it is that his parents were telling in order to sell books or whatever mm -hmm. it was they were doing right get on paid promotional tours whatever it was they were um accomplishing through that and i think he has become convinced. The thing that he said over and over again through the whole uh, movie was, 
I just want somebody to believe me Mm. because he doesn't. He knows that all of that is a lie and it is the lie that's made him who he is. And who would he be without that lie? Mm -hmm. Certainly not famous Danny, even though none of us has ever heard of him before and he is not famous. And after seeing this movie, I don't think this movie will do it either because I don't think anybody's going to watch more than I only watched the whole thing because we were doing this. Yes. I would have quit after about 15 minutes. Right. It's terrible. Well, it's it's a it's a strange like what they ask of you is strange because he is a- acting the entire time as if he's being violated and put out. And it's like, I didn't invite you here. Right. I didn't ask you to make this. It's documentary. his what documentary. Are you doing? You're so on camera. He's so mugging it up for the cameras. They're following him around. He clearly consented to do. I- this what are you what are your motives here sir and it's about being famous it's like the people who go out of their way to get photographed by the paparazzi pretending that they don't want to be photographed by the paparazzi right yeah like he that's who he was that's all i saw yeah you know and i think it is probably manifested into a kind of mental illness for him Mm -hmm. because it it happened to him so young and he can't seem to see a way out of it. But I think his anger and his resentment towards that father guy, towards Mr. Lutz, yeah. is born of that right. more than any of the other things that he characterized. He may have been a terrible, abusive father, but that doesn't even seem like he would have had a chance to really do that. Uh, the um, What did you think about the strange swirl of sort? Like the, the, the documentary addresses the allegations that they were making up in a but cursory like there's a school of thought that this was a story about the fact that they couldn't afford the house the surveying business that george lutz was running was going under laura the reporter contradicts that or challenges that by saying they were only in the house 28 days they didn't have time to fall behind on their which i think sounds very sensible to me you you think you think that they it wasn't that that wasn't i don't think that was it yeah i don't know what their agenda was and you know, who can, whoever can tell. It's like the, yeah. it's like that. Um, oh, what was the guy's name who pretended that he'd met um, Howard Hughes and wrote the, uh, the biography of. Him. They made a movie of it called Hoax. I think uh, Richard Gere played the lead in it. Oh, it was, yeah. but it was, yeah. it was this whole sort of like I don't know what it, I don't know what or um, Balloon Boy. Remember mm, Balloon Boy? Yes. Like, I don't necessarily know what the. What what it would have produced, except a desire to be famous, to get attention for right. some reason. Yeah, and maybe they think that's going to make them more money, or maybe whatever. I I have no idea. They had gotten this house at a discount. It was the scene of this horrific um, serial murder. Yeah. Um, and they took that and ran with it. There may have been some um, supernatural events. As I say, I am not. I am not a person no. to dismiss. I believe in the supernatural, yeah. and I have had supernatural experiences of my own, mm-hmm. but not in not in that kind of extreme way that they described. The ones that they described seem more like scenes out of movies that I've seen than something that actually could happen. Well, to a and it's the behavior around the people who experience it. I think is where I give my biggest scrutiny. We watched. We didn't do an episode about it, but the first season of the new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix did a did a segment about a, a rash of people in the same geographic oh area, none of whom knew each other, none of whom were talking to each other, who all had a similar experience of, of UFO contact, who buried it for years and only later found out the commonalities. Members in their of experience. the same family had and had the that, experience and they didn't even tell each other. And that, to me, 
is more believable. I think most people, and I wrote about this in my novel Decimate, people shove it down. Yeah. People do not want to be ridiculed. They do not. People, most people don't want their belief system altered that dramatically. We try to stay in our in our lanes and we try to stay comfortable and we try to stay in a place where we feel like we're in control. And a paranormal experience that blows your doors off in a way that most people actually, I think, don't want. Um, and I think when you when you take that into account and you look at the contradictory poses of the Lutzes saying, we want our privacy respected, but we're going to allow this giant group of television reporters into our house. We just, we're going to move to San Diego to get away from the publicity, and now we're going to go on the Merv Griffin we're go show. We're to Los Angeles and I, go on Merv Griffin. You know, it's like... Let I, me ask you a question. Yes. Mm-hmm. What was Charlie's father's motivation? Charlie, and so in, in, in Burning Girl, or in the Burning Girl series, Charlie's father um, gets custody of her after she's rescued... And he doesn't fundamentally believe that she has not been damaged by those two serial killers raising her as their own. He fundamentally believes that if he doesn't keep her involved, and this was something I was going to explore in a later book, and maybe I will in the series, in this constant publicity tour of presenting her as a victim, and in a weird way, making her apologize for their crimes, because the, the the man of the serial killer couple is dead, kills himself in jail, and the, and the woman is still alive and rotting to death in prison, um, that he has to constantly keep using this media exercise to purge their demons from her. That's how he has rationalized making a mint off of her. In a weird way, he's punishing her. And I think in, in the third book, Charlie, or Charlie may reflect back on that and sort of understand that, that if I never stop making you do this, you're going to forget and you're going to regress to being that little girl on that isolated farm being raised by two lunatics. Yeah. He, he's a horrible man himself. He's not a good father. He no. wasn't a good husband to her mother, as is later revealed. But to some extent, what he does to her is worse than what they do to her. But in the, in the book, what you're learning is that she's rescued right at the point where they're going to begin actually grooming her, not the made-up GOP anti-gay version, actually grooming her to normalize serial murder, right? Like she says in the prologue of that book when she's thinking back, she says, they tell you that there's a certain class of people that it is acceptable for you to kill if those people trigger in you something that is dangerous. And that is the that is the belief system of the, the female of the serial killer couple. Right. This is how she purges her husband of her of his demons, his desire to rape and murder. She participates in it. She allows him to do it to the women who bring this out in him. You know, it's all deeply fucked up. I mean these are all complete and total sure. psychopaths it's and still murder. Most of the book and book series don't happen in that terrain. They happen with Charlie in her more sort of contemporary life as she's working to get past it. But I think, you know... But it's that setup. Right. The thing that fucked Charlie up was that, not being raised by the, the serial killers. Right. It was the thing. And in 28 days, Danny was not fucked up by the supernatural. Danny was fucked up by what his parents subjected him to. Right. Afterwards, because the other, for whatever their reasons were, the other contradiction that I think supports what you're saying is that he says he complains violently in this documentary that at the time they wouldn't let him be interviewed and he couldn't tell his side of the story and he wanted very very much to tell his story and to talk about what was going on to him. But at at 16, he ran away from home and went to live in the desert to get away from the reputation. I'm like, wait, this isn't so making sense. When you got there, why didn't yeah. you write a book or tell right. the story or go on television or right. whatever? Like yeah. nobody stopped you. Totally. 
I, when did the do you know when the movie came out? Because I think some of this may be him reacting to that. I think well, it was I'm a couple sure of years later. I'm sure there's a blurring of those two yeah. things. I mean, the fact that he was conscious of those other names, right? To me, says, oh well. There was a remake made in 2005 with Ryan Reynolds, but the original I think was, was 1977. Wasn't it Barbara's husband? Wasn't it um, Josh Brolin? Josh Brolin, Margot Kidder. I watched the first 10 minutes. Rod Steiger. I wanted to see how they presented the uh, the children. And oh, interesting. They, what did you think? Well, it wasn't, you know, the kids, it was a very sort of slow movie by today's standards. It was a little hokey. Um, what I thought was interesting was they really leaned into the fact that they knew full well that a mass murder had taken place in that house. That, you know, it right. wasn't that tropey thing of we're not going to tell you what's going on no, in the basement. No, they absolutely were. 1979. 1979. They absolutely were aware of it. Yeah. That's why they got the deal that they got on the house. I think that um, it, it was interesting towards the end, one of the paranormal investigators that Laura sits with, not the people I think who were in the house that night with the Channel 5 crew, but she's one of them says, you know, I th- what I believe... The documentary becomes increasingly skeptical of Danny as it goes along. In the last half hour, they start to interview the psychologists who are saying these stories have earmarks of fabrication, of going back and filling in the gaps with things he was told later. Of things that he's come to believe because he's told them for so long. One of the investigators says, I believe that this family was subjected to some low-level paranormal activity but that the intensity of the focus on them, the reason the story went as big as it did, is because that really notorious mass murder had happened in that house. And so if right. they had had the sort of hauntings, poltergeisty things in a house where Ronald DeFeo hadn't shotgunned his family, New York Newsday never would have been The house was it. already famous yeah. before they got there. Yeah. yeah. And then by virtue of getting the house, they had to be as famous too. And they did everything they could to be famous. And that poor little guy is still... Trying to be famous. The thing that he described that was the most heartbreaking for me was that it was his job. He said his mom was saying to him that she it was her job to look after him. And he said, no, it's my job to look after you. And he said, and it's my job to look after a little 10-year-old Danny. Mm-hmm. Like, he's still protecting yeah. that kid. That really fucked up man is protecting that kid. Yeah. From all of the shit that he was subjected to. And I don't think it's typical abuse, but I think it was still abusive. Well, to what extent did you believe that George Lutz was abusive? Well, I think George Lutz was probably uh, emotionally abusive to the Mm -hmm. kid. That seemed to be the case. I, the rest of it doesn't, didn't smell as true. Mm Mm-hmm. As that, I think he was a difficult child and did not want another father. But there was no other father or relatives coming to the rescue. And she was not, they were not isolated from the rest of their family. They went to stay with family in San Diego when they left the house. They, it was, he was not in some way held away from or in a, in a, threatening position isolated from yeah yeah he was that was never the case so i don't think extensive physical violence could really have been part of it but being cold and withholding and 
mean and argumentative and that you can be a bully without ever laying a finger on somebody. So I think that's very much possible. I think he's probably a man. My guess would be is that what we're looking at is the confusion of paranormal activities with a case of PTSD. Yeah. That the Marine father had stepfather had some sort of delusional PTSD stuff. And that was the basis of the belief in paranormal manifestations yes. in in that house or in and around him, him seeing things that, that his own mental illness were producing in him um, in and around that. I, I don't know how PTSD works, but it seems that there is a certain amount of mm-hmm. reliving the traumatic events. And if you were having some very credible reliving of a traumatic event and you might confuse it with, which is really the opinion of the psychologist that they interview late from UC Irvine. She basically says you confuse reality. When you're that young, you confuse your experience with reality. There's a theory out there that really dismisses alien abductee experiences as it's the mysterious skin theory, if you've ever seen that movie, which I know you have in that book by Scott Heim. Right. Which is that alien abductees are actually experiencing repressed memories of sexual abuse, which are fighting to come to the surface, right? Yeah. It seems a little sweeping to me. It seems a little dismissive. But I kept waiting for someone to apply that narrative here that the abuse had maybe been sexual in nature, it had been worse, and it had contorted into this supernatural narrative in his mind. But nobody ever seemed to suggest that. They just seemed to suggest he no longer knew the difference between fantasy and reality because, for the reasons that you're pointing out. Family stress, public exposure, exposure, dislocation, media in the driveway, that his parents were kind of inviting to be there, you know, that kind of thing. Um, then we go to a place where he starts to tell us that George Lutz had the ability to move objects yeah. with his mind. And I'm thinking, this is a man whose business was failing and he could have made money float up out of a bank vault and into his pocket. And yet, the, the, I mean, the house does ultimately go into foreclosure. Isn't that right? They don't pay they the mortgage. They stop paying it. When yeah. they leave, they stop paying for it. They lost the house. Okay. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And 
while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. So let's talk about Lorraine Warren. Oh, my God. Okay. That is really... I have to say that there was an aspect of this that felt a little exploitative to me. Like she was such a deeply fucked up woman. Yeah. I felt like it was almost like, it was like when they did the interviews with Anna Nicole and she was so high the whole time. It was Mm. just like, it was just, I just felt like this woman is defenseless and Mm -hmm. she's lost in whatever this is that's happening to her. And you're, almost holding her up to ridicule or at least the possibility of it because the thing she's saying, like introducing those chickens and mm-hmm. the um the identical twin chickens that look nothing alike and the um <laughs> and the the, the, the 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 fragment of the true cross. I okay. just it was So let me say okay. I had a slightly different take, but this was the most challenging part of the documentary for me for a lot of reasons because this was where it became clear that anyway, I'll get there in a second. Lorraine Warren is actually the most famous person in this right now because the Blumhouse did a series of movies based upon her and her husband and based upon that house and the collection of supernatural paranormal artifacts in that house. The Conjuring is based on Lorraine Warren. That's interesting. I didn't know Annabelle is based on Lorraine Warren. And so... This was she was like the star that they were building up to. She has she has really made a name for herself in this field. Wow. So I thought she was mugging. I thought she was performing for these cameras. Oh. I agree with you. I think she. I don't agree with her take. Her take is steeped in religion. It's steeped in Christianity. Yeah, which and is always I just, and challenging. I'm out. For me. I'm out. When you when you start to say the paranormal is governed by fundamentalist Christian principles, I just I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. I don't believe you. I don't. I don't believe that anyway. So. And I thought he, his reaction, what did you think of his reactions well, to her? He was like mugging behind her. I couldn't tell if he was sincere or if he was making fun of her. He was pulling faces over her shoulders and mouthing words and stuff behind her and saying, this is just crazy. And things oh. like, like I, I didn't know quite how to take his reaction to her. But if you're looking at his insanity as a manifestation of his inability to separate his reality from his delusions of fame. Mm-hmm. The most famous person in the room exactly. would be right. the person he would react to with the greatest reverence. So that's, that's yeah, I, I, I didn't finding that out about her. I didn't know that oh, about her. I didn't know who the hell she was. Yeah. I just took her at face value. Um, that really, that changes a bit of my sense of his reaction to her, mm-hmm. the two of them together. Yeah, when he kissed the the cross locket with the she piece brings of the out cross. a crucifix and says it is a piece of the true cross. Yeah, and I was like, first she turns, and this is this is where I really it's got a piece of wood. That's I got over really two thousand years old that's still fine, and she has it in a little locket that she wears around her neck in a cross. And I have to say, when she turned to the crew. And said, now, is anyone here not Christian? I thought, fuck you, bitch. I was like, when you're challenging the crew that's coming to your house, that if, because the idea was- Non-believers. If anyone was a non-believer, they were going to let in some evil 
into this house that's apparently full of stuff that's like you know supposed to be possessed I and no I don't idea. know what you know no so idea. she she is really um I didn't realize that wasn't clear to me from I, I saw the conjuring I think and I didn't really I didn't, didn't see any of those things I know, don't see but, those things I just don't have much interest but in I them. don't remember it being presenting her as this idea that and they they referenced somebody is like well if they were baptized they were protected from the evil in that house and I was like oh give me a bite me you know, as if it would be that simple, as if the doorway is going to open to the mystery and it's, it's going to be that it's simple. The, the absurdity yeah. of knowing that. Right. Like I just it's I think all of those things are fine for, you know, the horror movie genre. But in reality, like what we don't the only thing we know for sure is we do not understand the nature of our existence. And so people's attempt to explain it in hyper simplistic fairy tales versions mm-hmm. Just, I, I, you know, that I guess I suppose that could possibly be true, but I don't see why it would be. Like, there's no evidence to support it. It doesn't match up with the reality of our actual experience, and it's simplistic. I think the explanation is probably way more complicated. But I'm going to put you on the spot, because you're a writer and a good one and a very creative person. If you had to write the story that explained... The paranormal events that, that that are alleged to have happened in that house, Take, taking saying they're real, they're really happening in the in the context oh. of your story. What would be your explanation of the governing force? Would you go the sixth sense route and say the ghosts are trying to communicate with us and get across a message, okay. or where well, would you go? The first thing I can tell you, I would not do that. Would not in any way be included as part of my story or my explanation would be Catholicism. That yeah. would not be my starting place, and that was the starting place for everybody in this movie, mm-hmm. both Lorraine's and Danny's. Yes. Like, I just, that is what I'm talking about, the oversimplified version of how that story happens. Mm-hmm. I think my version would probably move more towards the... Um, the Stranger Things kind of like the the thin spot in yes. the in the, um, the 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 fabric between one reality and another. I I think that some version of the multiverse as multi dimensional mm-hmm. really does work for me right. as an explanation because of the the nature of our existence because most of our existence is defined by what we cannot perceive right. Like the sense of space in between you and me is defined by my inability to see that there isn't any space in between you and me. It is completely filled. Mm-hmm. It's like fish not being aware of the water that they're swimming in. Yeah. Like we're surrounded by, and they, but I don't, I can't perceive of almost any of most of the spectrum of sound or light or anything else. I can't see or hear or whatever because of the way that I'm having this experience and it creates my reality, but it doesn't mean the same, this same matter, these same atoms couldn't also be part of a different reality at exactly the same time because the reality is about the perception, not the substance. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that if there was a thin spot between those two realities Mm -hmm. that allowed things to, pass back and forth it would appear illusory i did it again this is never happened over your before. ipad this is a haunting right, right? Here. it's We're the haunting haunted. of uh yeah dinner partner studios um i would think that that to me would be a good starting place for trying to explain the seeming appearance or the appearance of those phenomenon in 
a different environment that maybe somebody was reaching through, maybe somebody was trying to communicate, or maybe it is simply this overlap between realities that explain yeah. how would you explain it? I, I would go, probably go in that direction as well and the difference is that Lorraine Warren says at one point or is alleged to have said by by somebody else quoting her so apparently there was this concentration of quote-unquote evil in the sewing room of the house and so she says there was there was a passage down to the bowels of hell the difference between me and her and I think it's as you've just described is that I wouldn't decide anything down there was hell no. And I wouldn't decide just because it was strange and, and that mysterious that it was evil, yeah. right? You know, so yeah, I would probably go in that relate. What I would need to attack as a writer is this simplistic idea that spirits would just want to fuck with us, that that they're just pranksters or idiots or rogues, what they used to call astral tramps, right? Just sort of crazy, mad, disconnected spirits. Well, it's just arrogant. Yeah. Like, why us? What are What's so special about the, the Lutzes? Why would yeah. anybody give a shit about them? I still don't. And right. all of this has apparently happened to them. And I still don't give a shit about them. Like, I certainly don't wish them ill. Right. Or wish all of this on them. But right. I I, that there is no reason for a demon to come up from the bowels of hell to torment this random family who is nothing special. It's still and, nothing special. And that would be the story that I would tell it because they, every they tried to shoehorn this story as the explanation of why it didn't happen to any of the subsequent four to five families I think who have lived in the house since why they've had no paranormal contact is because there was something about George. George drew the evil, and it's like no. And Danny was bought into that reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. That sense of him, some George was evil. And the story that I would tell is about the family stumbling into the middle of that thinning of the veil, if you will, something vast, having to find their place in it and figure it out and work together and try to determine what it is they're really going on so that they can askew the simple explanation. What was that movie? I think it was Denzel Washington where the bad angel kept in transferring from one person to the next. Fallen. Yeah. Like yeah. that. that kind of notion is sort of mm -hmm. like... All right, that's sort of fun, but like otherwise, how do you explain this? You know, like this going to the sort of notion of of an intrinsic goodness or evilness as based on some sort of religiosity leaves out the possibility of the randomness right. of what could actually be happening. Yes, exactly. I, I and I I just think the question for me would be like. What is this land that they're sitting on, really? It's it's not about Ronald DeFeo. It's not about that mass murder. If the, if this remarkable thing is happening in this house, this house is on top of something that is uh, beyond ordinary human understanding. Yes, but yeah. perhaps the 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 fallen angel mm -hmm. would convince Ronald DeFeo to murder his family, and right. then the fallen angel is still there. Right. Yeah. But it, you know the the one that I thought came the closest to organizing an idea like this, I didn't necessarily think it was the most brilliant thing that I'd ever seen, was, oh, what was it called? It was on HBO. It was a Stephen King story. It was the um, Jason Bateman plays the father who, it, all the DNA evidence suggests that he committed this horrible murder of a child, oh, but he didn't. Right. And then you discover that it is this supernatural force that, that is- woman who played- yes. um, 
Harriet Tubman was. I think it's called The Stranger. Was in was was the Cynthia Ervo. She's made. It was really so good. The best version of this, but the idea was there was a being with a specific agenda that thrived off of destroying these individuals who were not guilty of these crimes, and the and it was like a chain reaction of chaos. It was it was it was. It was like anything that introduces an almost science fiction-esque alternate system of reality and appetite and hunger versus consumption and destruction, all that sort of stuff gets me excited yeah. creative, creatively. That's really very creatively yeah. exciting. Yeah. Like it, the, the, the concept that has I've seen in that, in that sort of world of late that is the most uh, imaginatively seductive was in um, Loki. Mm-hmm. When the other Loki, the female Loki, locates the the outsider. Sorry, I found it. The outsider. Okay, that was locates the show we were their talking outsider. About. Yeah. Um, locates the outsider hiding in the midst of disaster, mm-hmm. so yeah. that you can't tell that they're there. Yes, as they travel through reality and dimension. And that's I just thought. Wow, that is so mind-blowingly brilliant and complex. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the way that I would love to go with a haunting story is that it's a temporal disturbance. Yes, it's a, it's a absolutely. It's a time fuck. Dimensional. Like, your or temporal, sense of time yes. is like there's a glitch in the matrix, for lack of a better phrase. Right, exactly. Because death is the collapse of time. If we continue to exist in a plane beyond this one, our connection to Earth time or this realm's time. Is 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 gone. It's obliterated. Yes. So why would we be limited by it in our next form? Anyway, yeah, I could go on all day about yeah. this shit. And that's that to me is much more fascinating. So this is a little pedestrian. This well, is superstitious um, explanation of but strange events and I, whatever. And I think you know, like Marine with PTSD moves family into murder house and. Madness ensues. You know, like that was sort of the. I don't know that it was worth an hour and a half of my life. Um, no, I don't know either. I think it could have been shorter. I. What do you? What did you ultimately come to believe the agenda of the filmmakers was? Because let's talk about the last to exploit scene. Exploit Danny. Okay. Yes, I think that's part of it. But what do you think they believed their agenda was? Because I think the movie ends with them asking him, "Will you take a lie detector test?" And he gets furious. He gets suspiciously, kind of repulsively angry and self-righteous. Whereas if it were me and I had been through these things, I might actually volunteer to take a lie detector. I might have taken a lie detector test multiple times 20 years ago. And I thought in that moment, oh, you're trying to show that he's not telling the truth. You don't believe he's telling the truth. All this journey, watching him talk to all these people, you were basically trying to expose him. As well, his delusional. answer was actually pretty good. Yeah. Like he said, if I take it, then will it give you what you need to believe that I am telling the truth? He said, that's the reason that I've had the kind of reaction that I do. The thing that is deceptive about that is mm-hmm. you don't know when in the process that recording was made. Yeah. Of like, them asking him the, that. Yeah. That's the end of the movie that they showed you. But right. I don't know it's where they knocked off. I would doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that they did a few interviews with him and a few interviews with other people to, you know, tease the idea of, well, are they lying or is he really, you know, do you really believe him or whatever? And so casting doubt about that at the end would be a great way to 
kind of lean into that question in terms of the the whole piece. But I honestly, it was so nakedly exploitive mm-hmm. of that boy, right. of that poor damaged man who I actually felt bad for. Did you? I really did. I felt mm-hmm. like he was really, really a deeply screwed up person with a really challenged sense of his, his identity and reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like they were just taking advantage of it in order to produce something sensational based on this old story. Um, it's still the DeFeo house. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. That's right. still what that, that's still at the core of what's going on. Did it really happen? Did they really think, look at this poor boy. Here's his story. Here's his, here's what he believes. You know, we're, we're just going through that same thing again. And the kid was so bought into it. It was like filming um, Anna Nicole. The kid was so bought into He's not a kid anymore. The man was so mm-hmm. bought into it that there was no, you know, that he was completely involved in what they were doing because he needs to be who he is by being famous yeah. for being who he is. Right. And I don't know who he is, but that's not who he is. No. I want to ask you a bigger question in the time that we have left. Um, And it's about (laughs) nuclear physics. Right. (laughs) This cold fusion stuff. Okay. No. um, So exciting. um, In the 70s, there seemed to be a dramatically changing relationship between, I don't want to say popular culture, but the average person and the paranormal as a Mm. topic. And you were a young man, a very, very young man in the 70s. I was not born yet when this happened. <laughs> what do you think was going on in the culture that was opening that up? Like, Because this is happening. I think Stephen King is about to break out. His career is around this time, his first few books. Um, horror as a, as a major book market is going to take off. It's then going to collapse and contract and all that sort of stuff. There was a movie made about this within two years of it hitting the papers. What do you think was going on? Was this a PTSD reaction to Vietnam? Like I'm interested in your cultural take on this moment in the in the culture. Well, I honestly think that the best take on this in terms of you know artistic take on this is Ang Lee's Ice Storm. Oh, interesting. It Ice Storm is about is Ice Storm is a snapshot of who we were in an actual that there actually was an ice storm. I was mm-hmm. I remember that too. But who we were in that moment I think we may have talked about this before, maybe even on the show. Um, In 1969, as a result of the convergence and confluence of forces, I think there was a real shift in our cultural consciousness. I believe that a sense, our belief in who we were, who we are, collapsed. Hmm. It was... I think the Vietnam War was a contributing factor. I think the um, the beginning of this um, upward migration of wealth into mm-hmm. um, a cultural disparity was part of it. I believe the collapse of the education system that is really manifesting right now was a part of it. Um, I also think that people were the best educated that they had ever been in our, the history of our nation at that moment. Mm, mm-hmm. I think the the education system began to decline under Richard Nixon and thereafter and has never recovered. It's gotten progressively worse. Um, but I think it was no longer possible for us to believe in a lot of the sort of mythology of self that had carried us to that point. Mm. 
I think that tell me really tell stopped. me what you mean by mythology of self, just to, as a definition. I think the sort of like, um, people's belief in there was an absolute moral right or wrong. Right. Isabella Rossellini is the daughter of, um, well, I can't remember her father's name, mm. but Ingrid Bergman right. and the director of Rossellini, whatever mm. his name was. And when she got pregnant with that woman out of wedlock, it completely erased her. She mm. was destroyed by it because there was a sense of absolute mm-hmm. right and wrong. Can you imagine yeah. somebody being shunned by our culture currently because they had a child out of wedlock? Nick Cannon is up to... 15? I don't mm-hmm. even know. I can't even stand to hear about it anymore because mm-hmm. it's so ridiculous and irresponsible. But but there is there is absolutely no stigma involved yeah. anymore, aside from me being a snarky bitch about <laughs> it. Um, but, but what happened was in this moment of collapse, in this period of collapse, there was nothing to replace it with. And we did not know what to do or say or believe in mm-hmm. subsequently we just knew that what we had brought us to this point wasn't working for us intellectual anymore we could no longer use it as an explanation yeah. for where we were or who we were we didn't know that but we didn't know what it was my favorite example again is in um is in I, I draw from the the ice storm there is a conversation um Kevin Klein is the father and he picks up the mm. Hobbit. He picks Elijah up Wood. Elijah Wood from yes. the airport and he brings him home from school and they start talking about, I believe the conversation begins about sex and relationships and it starts to being about masturbating in the shower and then it turns into, well, maybe you should, you know, a, a discussion of water conservation. Mm-hmm. Maybe the shower isn't an appropriate place because we don't want to... You know, where is it that we land mm-hmm. in this? Con- where is it an appropriate conversation between father and son yeah. in this particular moment? And they can't find it. Mm-hmm. And it goes from, so you're immediately you seeing any girls in school to right. water conservation just in a drive home. Right. Because they don't know what to say to each other. Like mm-hmm. there was enormous silences. The things that we accepted as etiquette were no longer, maybe this is etiquette? What is Mm. etiquette? Is that Mm -hmm. really important? Are manners really important? Like, do I really need to get dressed up for that? Or can I just wear blue jeans all the time? All of those were things we were beginning to, you know, to question and to, Mm -hmm. and we didn't have answers for them. And I think a lot of this stuff, a lot of the things that you are describing is us casting around Mm to get a sense of what it was we actually do believe. Yeah. And to find some sort of, I don't know if it's moral certainty, but certainly moral direction. Yeah. There was a real disparity. There's a real um, divide in what people decide is moral. Like, greed is good was 10 years later. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, But so was um, silence's uh Death. Death. You yeah. know what I mean? So there's there's a whole sense of you mm-hmm. know where we were headed. And I think two really big channels opened up and they're still diverging mm-hmm. uh, and and trying to resolve themselves as our culture continues to very in a very evenly divided way, tear itself in half because we can't decide what to believe. 
what is important, what is true, what is morally. Does that? I think that's brilliant. That's, I, I, but but I think where it's left us is we are in we are in an age where we believe and trust only our personal grievances. I think we we are in an age of of identity politics, and I think the Trump supporters are as guilty of it as the rest of us. We see ourselves as members of individual um, victim groups who um, cannot be spoken to or addressed or helped by people who have not shared our exact same experience of a certain set of qualities. I don't, I'm not saying we all believe this, but I'm saying this is the popular governance of debate right now. And I think the people on the radical right are just as mired in it as much as they claim to decry it and whatever. And so it seems like we've moved out of that sense of the collapse of the binary sense of what morality and etiquette is, as you said it, and into what seems like a more chaotic and fractious environment that is also, I think, the end result of people getting a voice in a platform who didn't have one before. So I don't know if I just contradicted myself, but I think we are... Like the data is still being uploaded, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, but there is no shared yeah. belief. There's not. We're, we've lost a sense of shared beliefs. Like there this, is no yeah. sense of like, well, this is true because this thing. Right. There is no this thing anymore. And so, is this true or is this not true? Like, we're we're now electing people who just completely made up their entire right. life story. Absolutely. Like, I don't see how um, the guy who got elected in New York is any different than Donald Trump. They just yeah. completely made it all up and like they lied. Okay, but and and it's the divisions are about it's fine if if my guy lied because my guy is absolutely bloodthirstily determined to hold back everything that I'm terrified of, no matter the consequences. That's the, that's to me the most terrifying underlying source but of maybe the division. who cares if it's lying? Maybe yeah. lying isn't a moral certitude. Yeah. Like there was a point at which. We used there was it kept happening during the the Trump era. People kept saying, if this one thing happened, it would be the scandal that brought down the whole yes. administration. And this is just the thing that happened Monday. Mm-hmm. Like but there were so the, many scandals during the course of the week that, and they had we were impervious by yeah. this point because we don't have any sense of where, you know that where that lies. Yeah. Yeah. What intrin- what value there is, what that mythology of ourselves, of who we are. Yeah. I think that was the question I sent out to answer. Yes. I brought it yeah. up. And-, and that and so that opened up this because the thing is, you meet someone like in this documentary, Laura, the reporter, and you think, oh, she was a TV reporter and she was really into the paranormal. You would think I thought, oh, she wants to be free of religion. She's looking for other answers, more complicated answers. No, she had seen it. She was seeing it entirely through a demonic framework. She was looking for viewers and validation. I yeah. think she wanted to do her. Her beat was going to uh-huh. be this thing that made sure. her. And anyway, that was disappointing to me. But you're right. And and I think that was the beginning of like that was the beginning of a lot of what we take for granted today in pop culture. That was the beginning of comic books being taken more seriously and not being dismissed. It was sure. the age of interview with the vampire, the novel. It was it was a lot happened in that period. So I'm fascinated by it what as do, some what, as a creator. What do we believe? Yeah. It's okay. it's a it's a yeah. more of a defining thing than then I think we get pause to give it credit for it. Right. And, and, you know, I think some big players are emerging, but I don't think there's any final consensus in it. It has created a real, um, I don't know, split a personality dissociative yeah. condition for our culture. Absolutely. Anyway. Anyway, that was, a, that was, uh, that I think that was one of our best. 
I gotta say, I think that was one of our best episodes. I just, I feel like I, I mean, enjoyed based it. On a terrible movie. I mean, um, well, yeah, I know. I do not recommend. I it. don't Watch recommend the movie. The actual Amityville Horror, if you yeah. care. But like, I this was, this was an exploitive um, morass. You I, felt I just, they were exploitive. I was just yeah. felt bad for that kid. Yeah. I just that's all I could feel at the yeah. end. I just was like, that was awful. That poor yeah. child. I'm yeah. sorry that something more compassionate was not in the offing for mm-hmm. for him whether he warrants it or not yeah. um yeah um so have you you heard from jordan yes oh. i have heard from jordan oh. and, and we're gonna have to he wants to come on and explain himself so i you and i will talk after we end the episode but i i, th- I think he says that he's gonna come back next month and um, I think what's it called, like Valentine's Day or something? I can't remember. Oh, we're not on on Valentine's okay, Day. Okay, well, maybe the. Of course, he wouldn't know when we're on, but you know, like around that, he's because because he, he was supposed to do this thing on couples, and he completely flubbed it and didn't show up. And he's going to come and explain what happened. So you and I should talk about our approach because I'm pretty exasperated with him. And do you think it should involve actually talking to him? Huh? I think maybe. I think maybe. Huh, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Okay, we'll talk about it. We'll also see. I No, we're not going to see what the party people think because we have already heard them weigh in on Jordan. <laughs> they hate Jordan. Do you all hate Jordan? Do, they, do, do, do you think Jordan read their last comments? Because he's not acting like he... Maybe that's why he's afraid to come Do you think Jordan on. can read? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you have any thoughts on Jordan... Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'd uh, be interested in hearing them. Until then, and forever <laughs> after, I'm not Jordan Ampersand. Yes, thank goodness, because I wouldn't be doing this show with you, because I'm still Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.